Welcome to New Caribbean Voices, People Tree Press's literary podcast, featuring the best literature from the Caribbean region and diaspora. My name is Malaika Booker, and I am the curator and host for this podcast series. Welcome to episode three. This is an extended special episode. We start off with Jeremy pointing the People Tree Press's founder and managing director. It felt only right um, as we begin a new decade to ask him to tell us about some of the books that are important to People Tree Press that he've published in the last decade. So we'll be hearing from him throughout the program, giving us a rundown of some of those books. I'd advise you to get your notepad out and your pencil or your pen and just make a note of some of them because he does reveal some gems and some that I've not heard of that quite frankly I feel it's important for me to read and I'm sure you'll feel that way too. I then will be all talking with Anton Nimlet, I'm the short story writer about his book Now After. We'll hear from People Tree Press poets Aishan Hutchison, Tanya Shirley and Vladimir Lucian. They'll be talking about Unwritten a commission where they were asked to write poems about West Indian soldiers who served in the First World War in a bid to resurrect these erased stories and bring them to the forefront. And lastly, I was so pleased to have nabbed Roger Robinson just minutes after it was announced that he had been awarded the prestigious T.S. Eliot Prize for Poetry. Um, So we're going to have a little conversation as much of a conversation that you can have in the eruption and the kind of celebratory mood that kind of took over the room when it was announced. We'll begin this episode hearing Jeremy Poynton, People Tree Press's founder and managing editor, give us a rundown of some of the books that have been important to People Tree Press that they've published in the last decade. In this segment, he will give us a breakdown of the books from 2010, to 2012. Jeremy pointed. Okay, um, I'll say straight away that the, the books that I'm going to talk about are not necessarily, I think, the best books. Um, they, I, I mean, I didn't, I mean, I, it was very difficult not to talk about everything because I'm quite convinced that every book we did since 2010 was a book we ought to have done and is a book that was worth doing. But there, you know. But I have picked out some which, for for different kinds of reasons. I mean, for instance, I mean, perhaps I want to say that by two thousand and ten, People Tree had moved into easier territory. We'd been we'd given up printing ourselves for at least two or three years. Um, we ceased to have the kind of financial difficulties we'd had in the past. So we were able to focus much more on on straight publishing, and the number of books we were doing each year had grown so that in that decade, I guess we'd done almost around about two hundred books, whereas in the first ten years it would be more like seventy or eighty books. Right. So you know, there's a significant kind of difference. So let's start with two thousand and ten. I mean, I'm going to mention three three things. One of them was Aishan Hutchinson's Far District. And I'll mention that mm. because there was the emergence of somebody who is on the way to being a very significant writer. And also one who, who in the end, we, we lost, although he's a you know, we, a very cordial relationship. 
and his book still sells ten years later. You it's know, it's still it's a good book, and it's still it's still in demand. So, uh, you know, I I don't blame him in the slightest for going with Faber and Faber and uh, the American equivalent of Faber. But just yeah, just worth mentioning that that was a book which was an important book in terms of, of establishing somebody who's going to be a, you know who is a significant poet. The other one I will mention because it it took us a bit out of our our usual reach that year was Miriam Chance's book called The Loneliness of Angels. Brilliant book about setting Haiti and uh, Canada, um, of, you know, of, of that kind of crossing between those those things. And I think, you know, it's, it's a book which found some good, really, you know, sort of enthusiastic readers but one i think you know if you missed it 10 years ago it, it, it's well worth looking at she's a fine fine writer the other thing i mentioned from 2010 is it was the beginning of the point where we b- began to put edgar mittelholzer back into print right. so he wasn't the very first of the classics we did but it, he was an Im- for me it was an important one because he began as being perhaps the most significant of early kind of Caribbean writers, the first one to kind of earn his living by writing books, but who after his death um, totally lost reputation. And he wrote some some weird and and some some bad books later on. But those early kind of Caribbean books like Quarantine Thunder, Morning at the Office, Life and Death of Sylvia, Shadows Move Among Them, are all kind of books which I think, you know, you you, you think that any contemporary novelist or re, uh, somebody interested in character should have read. They are genuine classics. Can, uh, uh, sorry, go on. Yeah. I was going to say, can you tell us something about the Caribbean classic series? Um, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, just briefly, I mean, it, it began, I think the very first ones happened in about 2008-9, so the Mittelholzer ones are at the, near the beginning of it. I think we've done about 50 books since since in the series since then. The idea was that we would put back into print books that I thought were important and to put them out with, you know, nice new covers on with and all of them have a a kind of prefatory essay. <laughs> and when I couldn't find other people to do them I ended up doing them my, myself. But and you know, so that they they are they're all attempts to both say why this is a book which deserves to be continued to be in print it kind of puts books back into the context of the time so i think you know that part of it was for the general reader thinking yeah of giving some context for it but also kind of beginning things books that would be presented in a way that would be useful for for people teaching courses mm-hmm. you know there was enough good information there mm-hmm. um that put things into relationship with other things mm-hmm. being written at the time mm-hmm. and so on. So yes, I mean, it, and it covers, you know, it covers white. So the, the Mittelholzer ones were um, among the first. Um, they, I mean, perhaps one of the things I should, should give credit to is that the person who was really important in all that was Winita Cox Westmass, who did, who was, who kind of began the process of reviving Mittelholzer through doing a, doing a PhD thesis on it. And she wrote quite a few of the of the early uh, introductions, and and did a lot of work in terms of kind of. We later on we we did a a, a compendium of, of unpublished Mittelholzer, and she did a lot of work on kind of pulling that stuff together. 
Okay. So that was that. That was that. So, but maybe that's two thousand and ten. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Two thousand eleven mentioned perhaps three things different. The different kinds of things. One of the books I mentioned was Kwame Dawes. It's a big book of poetry called Wheels, mm. and it and it, it has it has the that kind of the, the image from I think is Eli is it Elisha or something who's. You know who's the, the the prophet with wheels of flame around yeah. or something, and I thought I thought wheels is an important book was an important book for Kwame because I think it pulled together different aspects of where he's been located. Mm-hmm. So it was a book which has it has a section which is which is a very Jamaican section. It has a lovely section that focuses on Ethiopia. And, vis- and, and visiting kind of Jamaicans who've gone to Ethiopia, but it's also a book where where he really gets to grips with where he is in America. In North Carolina, uh, North, in, in, yeah. So that it, it's is it North Carolina or South Carolina. South Carolina. He was in South. He was South still in South Carolina. Let's say. So you know, the, the, there's a you know, there are there are books which get to get to grips with the landscape of the place. Mm. But I think it's the kind of where he's also getting to grips with America as a nation. Mm-hmm. And becoming a poet who is straddling the Caribbean and America, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I think Wheels was, was a collection which really sort of put all those things together mm-hmm. in a powerful way. Mm-hmm. Another poet we'll mention is Loretta Collins Clover, whose first collection of poetry, Twelve Foot Neon Woman, mm-hmm. yeah. again brought something really kind of new into into writing of somebody who was. So she, I mean, she's a Puerto Rican writer um, who is writing an English which is heavily kind of dipped into the, you know, the the, the Portuguese Spanish Mm -hmm. and finding a way of making making it all hang together. And, um, you know, has been consistently a kind of, you know, an important voice in Caribbean poetry Mm, since that time. Mm -hmm. And whose book, I think, you know, interesting very nearly, I think, won a Bocas Prize, except mm. she was up against uh, Earl Lovelace. Yes. George Lamming was the chair of judges, and we thought for a minute that he was going to do the awful thing and declare Earl wasn't the winner, but he was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody was panicking about yeah. that kind of stage. And then the other the other book I'll mention, because it, it, again, it has a different thing, was we did a new issue of Mill Collins' novel Angel. Oh. And Angel, you know, is is, is her book ab- about the Grenadian Revolution yeah. and about the, the kind of leaving it. Mm. And uh, it, it was a novel I actually brought it out fairly soon after, you know, so perhaps in the nineties, I think. Mm. And I and I agreed with her when we we talked about it that, that she was not happy with the last third of the book, the book that that was kind of much more immediate and uh, and felt that. I think she felt that there hadn't been enough distance. Mm-hmm. That the kind of you know that the first two thirds of the book are very sort of confident and they know mm-hmm. exactly where mm-hmm. they're going. The last third kind of she she felt she hadn't done it as well as she could do. So the inv- invite was there, you know, rewrite mm-hmm. the, the last third of the thing, and she did, and she you know she revised. So the angel that came out in two thousand eleven is quite different. Mm-hmm. From the earlier version of it, and one a kind of mature, a kind of look at that, you know, the actual events around around there, and also, I mean, again, it raised an interesting thing because 
one of the things I found harder to accept is that Moore wanted to take out some of the forceful language of, of Angel. And I, you know, I thought, no, well, you know, th- th- this is th- this is language that is in character. It's you know, don't don't censor yourself. And but she made the very very good point. She said, I've got aunties in Grenada who open start reading the book and they get to a certain page and it uses a bad word mm. and they shut the book. Right. And they won't read any further. Mm-hmm. So she she wanted to, to she wanted to kind of edit the book slightly. So without changing anything else, the language of it didn't actually alienate, <laughs> alien, the alienate some of the audience. Who she's speaking to and who she's uh, writing out of. Exactly, suppose, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. she said, you know, literally her, some of her aunties mm-hmm. that she wanted to read the book. Mm-hmm. And she knew they wouldn't read the book or they'd stop reading their book until they, when they got to a certain point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that was an interesting lesson in kind of, you know, in, in thinking about readers. Thinking about that, mm. so that, that that was 2011. 2012 mentioned, you know, thing one of the books that was kind of an important book. I mean, that you, you remember sometimes there are books which absorb more of your time. So, one of the books that absorbed quite a lot of time that year were well, two of them. But one was Rupert Rootnerain's uh, The Sky's Wild Noise, and this, it that was it won that won the non fiction Bocus Award. And I think a lot of people think thought it should have won one the thing, but it that kind of illustrates the ways in which sometimes people. I always kind of felt that Rupert sometimes wasted himself in politics when he was such a good art critic, writer about culture and so on. It also makes the point that sometimes that those kinds of political demands take people away from doing things which they were very very good at, which was being a really good writer. Of about culture, about politics, about art, about I mean, he you know he's one of the best critics of Caribbean art there is, and um, yeah, so that the, bringing all those things together, that I thought that was an important book for what we did, and it made it made for me the point that okay, we, we might think of people like C L R James as being the Caribbean's important kind of prose writers. Um, in non in non fiction, and thinking, well, there what's all in the past. But there are people like Rupert doing that now, or doing it nearly ten years ten years ago. But that was an important book for me. Um, another thing which kind of illustrated a slightly different approach to the idea of the classic was the was the the idea of a book which which actually never appeared. So we did we did a collection of Neville Dawes writing. Kwame wrote a big introduction to it, a very personal kind of one. And Neville Dawes was... Neville Dawes was... Kwame, Kwame. Neville Dawes isn't, yes, it's Kwame's dad, who, mm-hmm. who died sadly quite, quite young. Um, but he, you know, he, he published a couple of novels in his lifetime, um, one of which we, we republished. I think we'll do the other one at some, some stage. But the other one, this is called Fugue and Other Writings. And it, what it gathered, he had a collection of poetry... Which some of which get into anthologies and stuff, but he was a fine and interesting poet. He has collections of short stories which are largely on the Caribbean voices, so we had to transcribe them from, you know, sort of rather faded kind of um, um, scripts, you know, not not from the original taste, but from the scripts of the things. His critical work, none of which was published at the time, right. 
and you think, yeah, you know, he was. It, it, it was a tragedy that he wasn't published at the time because he had very profound and kind of balanced things to say about the development of, of Caribbean literary culture. You know, he recognised that he recognised who was worth talking about at the time. So yeah, so the Neville Dawes thing w- w- was an, a, an attempt to kind of revive the canon by by publishing something who should have been published at the time but wasn't. Right. So that that was one thing. And the other book I'll mention briefly um, as being a book which I have a lot of affection for is Lakshmi Pasord's her last novel. I don't. I mean, I think she's kind of basically in retirement now, called Daughters of Empire. And that 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 was kind of shortlisted for various kinds of Caribbean things, and it's a very you know it's a fine novel that kind of moves backwards and forwards between Trinidad and London and looks at generations and you know it, it's a kind of I suppose it, it's an Indo-Trinidadian kind of version of Small Island of yeah. looking at that and very nicely written, very beautifully written. So that's two thousand and twelve. That was Jeremy Poynton giving us the first part um, of a three-part breakdown of some of the books important to People Tree Press over the decades. So we'll be hearing from him again later on in the podcast. I sat down recently to all talk with Anton Minnett, a Trinidadian writer living and writing in Brooklyn. His work has been published in Calabash, a journal of Caribbean arts and letters, and in African Voices. His fiction is included in the anthology Our Caribbean, a gathering of lesbian and gay writing from the Antilles, edited by Thomas Glade. He's published two short story collections with People Tree Press, Sections of an Orange, and recently Now After. And Margaret Lim, in her review of Now After for the Jamaican newspaper The Gleamer, describes the work as reminiscent of Jean Rees, saying that as it refocuses our imagination, now after also spotlights issues and themes that fit squarely into today's world, where queer and LGBT discourse is no longer hidden. I sat down with Anton to talk about his work and food. I am just going to enjoy. I love talking to writers. I'm excited to be all talking with you. So yeah, that's okay. what we're going to do. Good. Um I wanted to first of all talk to you, interestingly enough, about food. Because I know we're going to talk about now after, and we're going to talk about um, sections of an orange, such fascinating names for Anton's two short story collections. But I wanted to start off talking about food. Um, because I'm a writer who is who food plays a predominant part. Food is such a part of our Caribbean ritual. And as you did an interview you did about food and how it occurs in your work or how you feel about food. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, the funny thing is, you know, people looking at me might not see that food plays such a part of my life because I'm a skinny fella. But, but food is, as you said, it's a Caribbean thing, right? And it for me, so links me to family and culture and love. Um, and it's that nurturing thing. And I didn't at any point sit down and, and make a conscious decision to say I'm going to like use food in my work in that way. But it comes, it comes naturally. So yeah, it could be as simple as, you know, two men in a basement 
um, creating this scene where an orange is a part of it because there is this thing where my grandmother would peel an orange for the grandchildren. It was me and my sister and my cousin. And she would, you know, and, and that's this ritualistic act of love and family and all that. So, so yeah, food absolutely shows up in my work because it's absolutely one of those things that links me to things I care about. Um, so, yeah, absolutely in the first collection. And, and this time I might have even been a bit sort of like self-conscious about not using food and maybe I backed away, but it still comes. So there's a story called Perseverance Village um, in, the, in the new collection where they're just like, um, at some point the narrator just insists, like, we had to talk about doubles. Like, you know, we had to talk about doubles or jira pork or something that is like this street food that is this thing that links us and creates space and connection so yeah food mm. it's funny that you should bring up doubles because <laughs> you know i'm in brooklyn at the moment and um i was leaving from church avenue to come to you and there's bacon bacon things and i thought i'm coming to see a trinidadian let me stop off and buy some doubles of unfortunately to the person to people in front of me bought the last of the doubles but there was a food thing there I thought man I'm coming to see Anton Trinidadian let me bring some doubles and and that was yeah we're gonna all talk and lime over sure. doing a podcast but doubles will be like thank you for seeing me but let's share a meal together and break bread you know so I I mean that's one of the cool things about Brooklyn that we can do that right we can go to this place and we're going to line up because every place you go to get doubles you're going to line up but you line up and get your doubles. And yeah, the doubles might finish before you reach the front of the line. But you came to me and I got this beautiful offering of the thought and of the effort of going to buy doubles and bring me doubles. So I can't be mad at that. Good, good, good. And for anybody who doesn't know or who is not Trinidadian, doubles is kind of like a, um, it's kind of like a small roti, like a, like a miniature roti. With some chana in it yes. and some pepper and tamarind, if you want, and it's a street food. You would you would see a doubles man or a doubles woman somewhere in you know in in, in on a street corner in Trinidad, and you buy it, or you could go in a shop and buy it, right? And yes, but it's it tastes best when you're on the street, right? Mm -hmm. Doubles taste best when you're on the street. Um, when I was a boy, I went to Presentation College in San Fernando. And the doubles man used to be outside by the gate, and you would go lunchtime or recess time and buy a, a barra or a doubles. A barra is a single one. Nobody talks about that because we eat doubles in quantity now. Mm. And when I was in, in, I was home, I was in Trinidad for um, Bocas this year in May. And after the Friday night lime, which was wonderful, my cousin came and joined me, and we had to go and buy doubles on the avenue. You stand up on the street. It's 11 o'clock at night, people are walking up and down the avenue, and people are drinking and doing whatever, and you buy a doubles, and you're going to buy a next one, you know. You're not going to have just one. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's that same kind of thing, right? The food that does so much in terms of community and, and, and connection. Mm, mm, yeah. mm. And, and I suppose um, living in diaspora as well, um, connecting you to the, the home the homeland as well. Very you know? much and, so. And it, it most probably shifts and changes in a different space, but 
that's at the, you know. Yes, it's kind of a, a through line and a, a, a means of continuity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's one roti shop in Brooklyn that I go to. It's on, it's, I've worked at the same place for the past 12 years. Mm-hmm. And that shop is on my way home. And so that's where I go and I buy my roti or I buy my doubles or my alu pie. And they know me and I know them and it's that Ritual. connection. Yeah. Mm. I want to talk to you about um, your, you know, obviously published by People Tree Press. How did that come about? That, you know, at the moment we are talking in, in Anton's Kitchen in Brooklyn and if you hear any noise from outside, that's because there's an amazing summer festival in the park just up the road from him, house summer festival. So we might hear some of that in the background or that ambience. Yes, you are in Brooklyn <laughs> and you kind of, when you're in Brooklyn, you can't escape it. You don't want to escape it. So I'm glad to have you guys joining us and just kind of enjoy it all, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so tell me how did your relationship with People Tree Press start? So this is one of my favorite stories, and it's one of my favorite stories to share with um, with writers who haven't been published yet. Um, and it, it, I go back to that statement that luck is when opportunity meets preparation. So I'd been writing for a while. I'd been in workshops, and I'd had a couple of stories published um, in different journals, one of which was um, Calabash. Um, which was out of NYU, published by Jacqueline Bishop. And there was an event that we did at the Flatbush branch of the Brooklyn Library. Um, And so we both read that afternoon. I don't remember the specifics of the event, but the event was over and we were walking to the subway together, as people do. And we were just walking to the subway and Jacqueline said to me, do you have enough stories? Do you have a collection? Do you have enough stories for a collection? And I said, sure, yes. And Jacqueline said, have you ever sent it to PayPal? Or have you ever, you know, sort of like made that move? I said, no, I haven't. And the generous, wonderful person that she is, she said, I'll take care of it. And, you know, within the week, she had sort of like made the connection between me and Jeremy. And... um you know, less than a week later, I'd sent the collection off, and that's how this came to be. Um, Jeremy and I actually have the same birth date. Wow. Um, and I, I always come back in my head to a feeling that he gets me on a level somehow that's connected to that, you know. Um, and it's, it's really a wonderful thing to have a publisher who sort of understands your work, mm-hmm. gets it, and champions it. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And the other thing I wanted us to talk about, really, um, so you've had, you know, short story, you've had work publishing um, Our Caribbean, a, a gathering of lesbian and gay writing from the Antilles, and that was by Thomas Glade. How did that come about? So, and, and again, this comes back to, to, to generous people and, 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 and dedicated people. And so, you know, Thomas Glaive in saying that he wanted to, to do this, there's, there's a moment in time where that was really an important book to create and for someone to dedicate part of their life to putting this together, which meant reaching out to people like me who he didn't know 
um, making connections to, to, to get to that place, as well as sort of like including people who like Dion Brand, who had been doing work and sort of like obviously have to be, you know, included, unknown writers mm -hmm. to bring them together in a piece. Um, I think that's, that's, that's really important and it's a, a certain level of dedication. My dear friend Colin Robinson, who is a poet and has a collection also with People Tree Press. Your father uh, had Right? You have your father had head. Real Trini kind of title. <laughs> the most Trini title, I think, anywhere. You have your father had head. Right? So Colin um, was certainly more connected than me, but Colin had been reading my writing just uh, between us as friends. And he said you should submit something to Thomas. And I submitted a couple of things and and that's how that came in to being. And it was really an important thing for me as a writer to sort of like be included in that anthology. Well, you said that anthology is important. Explain about that anthology and why it was important. And so there's this thing where we are at a certain moment in time now and we might only see the world from this perspective. And so what it means to be a queer writer or a queer Caribbean writer or a gay man who is a writer at this point in time might be something that might be seem something we could take for granted or something that, that doesn't have certain resonances or certain challenges connected to that. If we go back to the time when the anthology was being put together, um, it was not that case then. And one of the things I think about a lot is sort of like the change from that point to this point in a relatively short space of time. And then I want to think through what that looked like 50 years ago and 100 years ago for someone who might have wanted to write stories or write poems that spoke to who they were as a queer person, a queer Caribbean person, um, or just what a queer Caribbean life might have looked like 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Because I'm coming from the place where I'm saying, of course, queer people existed then, right? Then as now and here as there and everywhere. So, so yeah, um, in terms of the anthology, I think it, it both... Um, it, it sort of like situated an important moment and sort of like archived that important moment in time. And also encouraged conversation between, um, I think, English-speaking Caribbean and, and non-English-speaking Caribbean because it, 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 it had a wide scope in terms of Caribbean writers. So yeah, Caribbean that was that, writers. that's one of those unusual things that Thomas mm. made a real point of doing, of mm. saying he wanted, you know, the Hispanophile... Uh, Caribbean as well as the Francophile Caribbean included um, and, and that's a challenge in many ways to do and he took it on mm, mm. Um, and, I, and so in doing those two things and then also sort of like establishing a platform establishing a platform for people to go on and be able to do other things in terms of like being established in the world and so now you can be freer to just kind of go ahead and write your story it was, I, I, you know, I think that anthology was a masterful curation um, on Thomas's part. If anybody's interested in that anthology, it's called Our Caribbean, A Gathering of Lesbian and Gay Writing from the Antilles, and it's by Thomas Glave. Um, 
let's move on to your work now. You are known as a short story writer. Um, you wrote sections of an orange. Yes. And your new collection is just, it's hot off the press. It just came out in August, you know, 2019. We're still in August in the hot Brooklyn, New York heat, almost Caribbean-like, sweating, turning off the air conditioning so that we can have this, um, you know, this, this, this uh, recording with no noise. Um, I wanted to know, as a writer talking to you, was there was there a difference in your approach in terms of in terms of the first book and the second book? Very much a difference in approach. Um, I always make the joke that um, writing the first stories was its own thing. You know, with the new writer or with me as a new writer, it was about. Oh, I am dying for the time when these stories can be in the world and mm. people can see them. That's, you know, it's the thing that's pulling you and pushing you to getting the work done. And so then the first collection comes out and you're thrilled and there are all these emotions surrounding that. And then you go to write more. And then for me, it was oh gosh, so someone's going to read this thing that I'm writing now. And it's a very different experience to write something for me with the feeling that there are going to be eyes on this in a different way than maybe just I'm going to show it to a few friends and some people in a workshop. Um, so that was one of the challenges to sort of like think through, to kind of like conquer. Um, and then for me, it was also a matter of wanting to sort of like maybe do something different and sort of like build on what I'd already done but not feel like I was writing over the same thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so my entry point for that was this concept of engaging with writers who I am fascinated by, for whose instance. work fascinates me. Um, so top of that list is certainly Earl Lovelace. Um, Trinidadian novelist, um, short story writer, braconteur. Like, I mean, when I, f I read Loveless the first time, it, while I was writing, when I, I just started writing. So I had this thing, I'm going back a little bit. Mm -hmm. I had this thing, I moved to Brooklyn when I was 13. Mm -hmm. So I didn't get to encounter Caribbean writers mm -hmm. I didn't get to encounter Caribbean writers in school. I didn't get to encounter Caribbean writers until I was an adult. Um, and again, thinking of how things changed through time. So I went to high school in Brooklyn and then um, university in Pittsburgh. And I never read anyone Caribbean in any English or literature class at, in either of those places. So there was this, this late discovering for me. So I, I, the first time I read Loveless, I read um, um, The Dragon Can't Dance, and I was just like, it's just this transformative thing. Um, and then discovering more and more Loveless. So yeah, Loveless absolutely in, in the novel was just one of those, like, had to be there. Um, and then there's also Naipaul, and there's Lamming, and with the Caribbean writers, it was also important for me to 
situate them alongside um, European and American writers. Um, and I had this whole thought process about why I did that. And is the thought process not, not, not working anymore? Right? No, no, the thought process is very real for me. The thought process was about saying, listen, my Caribbean writers going and stack up against your Melville and your Jonathan Swift and whoever. And so you have your canon and I have my canon and it's important for me to show those existing in the same space and of equal value. Mm, mm, mm. And so they, did they give you permission? Did they open up? Did they open up a space for you to, to see possibilities? How did they affect you um, reading those Caribbean writers? It all, although, interestingly, I noticed that most of the Caribbean writers you've named are male. It's, it's Lamin and... Um, although, you, you know, in the, in the in anthology you, you named Dion Brand, but in this kind of influential thing, was it important that it was male, that these male voices... Because sometimes, you know, um, at, the, at the... I don't know, at the embryonic, embryonic stage there's something that we need. Right. Um, no, so the Caribbean writers in the book are male. And it's not because only male Caribbean writers, only male writers, obviously or certainly, have had influence on me as a person or on me as a writer. Um, there's something organic that happened with the writers and the writings that became part of this collection that I don't quite have a, a, a full understanding of and I grapple with. Um, because in saying that I celebrate these writers, I, I, I celebrate Pauline Marshall and I celebrate Toni Morrison and, you know, the list is long and goes on. So for me to not have women here, that's something that I kind of haven't figured out how it happened, but it happened that way. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, lastly, um, I wanted to talk about talk about you know let's 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 feast on the new outlet to the world. You know, now after let's let's talk about that. How do you feel that the new book is just fresh off the press? Are there any things that you want to tell us about it? Um, are there any stories that are still resonating that people just need to listen to or, you know? No, that, I love that question. I love that question. Um, because it's, it's new and it's fresh and fresh is exciting and scary and all of those things. Um, and when you talked about resonating, I think that's where the book collection started. It's about, I'm a reader, right? Writers are readers. And... It's about that experience we have as a reader of coming away from this book that we loved. And while you're reading it, you get so entangled with a character or a situation and you're just kind of living through that in your own head and in your own world that's connected to but separate from the thing on the page. And so these stories are... They come from that place where, you know, I'm reading Moby Dick and it's the counterpane scene and it's like, wait a minute, this man wrote this how many years ago and it is the queerest and most erotic thing, like, ever? Like, um, 
So the book is sorry to interrupt, but the book is is kind of queering some of is is it is it queering or 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 seeing another kind of essence in some um, kind of classic literature that we would see? Is it in conversation with that? So when we were talking about the Caribbean writers, was that just a, a part of, 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 of some of the influences in the book? I'm sorry I interrupted you. To... No, I love interruptions. It can't be an old talk <laughs> if we're not interrupting each other, right? So we're all talking. Um, it's definitely not an intention to queer other existing writing. Right. But... As a queer man, as a queer-identified black, gay, Caribbean man, you know, label, 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 um, the lens that I'm coming from is always going to sort of like come back to that. Um, not always, but is often going to come back to that. So um, for me, if I'm reading, when I was reading Lamings in the Castle of My Skin, and we talk about Mr. Slime and there's an offhand line about his fancy ties and the, the 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 brightest ties on the island i want to know what's the story with mr slime and these ties boy where them ties come from what's going on with mr slime right and so that's kind of a jump off point that makes me want to think through that and so that resulting story might queer that story in some ways but in in another story that's coming off the loveless piece um it's called joyce's boy child right it's the child of one of the characters in loveless's um seminal novel um wine of astonishment and it's imagining what she would look like as an adult and seeing her child as an adult who is a preacher in the Anglican church. And so there the question is for me, what happens if we know in the story that this this young woman leaves her parents' Shouter Baptist church and marries an Anglican man? What happens 20, 30, 40, 50 years later to that woman who left the church and what do her children look like, right? So that's not about querying anything. It's about that that reader's imagining, that reader's wanting to just kind of hold on to to that story. And I want when people read this, and when people read now after, I want them to just kind of have that same kind of experience where they just latch onto a character and they're just like, wait, what? Who is this man? What's going on? And I feel like a writer should always leave space for a reader to do some of that. Um, and I want them to, to to be excited about that and maybe go back to the original work if they haven't been there in a while or if they've never been. And you might want to go back and... This Earl Loveless man and this, this writer is talking about, I need to read some Earl Loveless. Right. Right. So in a way, it's tribute. It's honoring... It's kind of elastic. It's like an elastic. Mm, an elastic. I like it's, that. It's, it's seeing another view. Yeah. It's writing into. It's wow. I'm a writer, and I, I wonder about this. And it seems to, um, as we're ending this, it seems to always start with questions. It seems that your stories, the way you've been talking about everything, I'm getting the idea that a question comes up, and then you decide how am I going to explore this question, or or or, or you start to try and. 
and, and, and unravel and, and answer the question and, and that, that then the fiction starts appearing. Am I right? Or? Yeah, of course you're right because you're a writer <laughs> and you know these things, right? And that's this writer conversation. No, I, a story for me always starts with a question. It's And sometimes it's something I'm trying to grapple with and trying to figure out. But the, you're right. It's always starts with a question. And... Um, so I actually went to school and did information systems as in, in, in university. And for me, it's always about problem solving. And another poet, because I love the poets, right? I love the poets. And a poet said to me once that she could see how problem solving was part of my fiction. It was wonderful sitting down and speaking to Anton Nimlock and finding out how he started writing, how generosity of other writers can kind of enable you to get out into the world and be published. And most of all, just sharing conversations about food. We're back to Jeremy Poynton as he gives us the second part of his illuminating breakdown of some of the books that are important to People Tree Press over the last decade. In 2013, there's this person who wrote this collection called Pepper Seed, <laughs> <laughs> which you know was was another like like Ashens was another kind of introduction of of, uh, of, a, of a voice which is you know has gone from strength to strength <laughs> since then. I won't embarrass you by saying any much more about that. But the the, the other the other I mean because it. And just for people who don't know, Pepper is um was written by moi, like the book, <laughs> okay, right? yes. which is why I'm laughing so subconsciously. Yes. <laughs> so that yes, so that's and that again make the point that this was a book that came out in 2013 and is still sells. <laughs> the other kind of book that again was kind of very meaningful in that year too was Desiree Reynolds' novel Seduce, mm. and that you know occasionally you have you you have the thing where. As an editor, you, you're kind of part of the process right from the very beginning of it. So we had a lot of sessions here. And, it, you know, and, it, and it's quite a privilege to see a novel kind of building up from from scratch. I mean, you know, the, the, and I, you know, I think I was quite tough on her sometimes, but it, it worked. You know, so it was thing, things like I said, she wanted to write a novel where it was just full of voices. And I said, but, but the voices all sound the same. Mm. Which they did do originally. They don't now, mm. and and you know. So there were there were. I mean, I learned a lot about the writing of fiction in the process. I'm sure Desiree thinks you know says she did too. So you know, Seduce was an important novel, and it, and it was kind of one of those things where that sh that kind of explores how somebody who who didn't really know the Caribbean other than through parents, grand, at that stage, I mean, she's been since that, through parents and uncles and aunts and things, explores an idea about the Caribbean and invents a, invents a Caribbean place. So it's about a totally imaginary island, mm. but it's an island w w where she's able to kind of work out all the sort of tensions that she's, she sees in the people around her. And, and, and correct, sorry. Go on, yeah. But correct, but is she kind of in this list that we've done? We've just come across, I think, the first kind of 
black British writing. Yeah, though, she. Know. I mean, she isn't. I mean, she isn't. She certainly isn't the very first black British writer. Mm. But it, it, in, in this, I mean, in, this, in, in the yeah, in right, this yes, list, in this no, list, no, no, is, no, yes, I, I'm not saying absolutely in not. No, I'm no, in yeah, this list yeah, in this list, she's the first been, one. Yeah, imagine. she's the first kind of black British yeah. writer who's kind of yeah. Um, um, you know, just kind of come up, bloomed in the, into the mix. Who bloomed, yeah. yes. Again, who is working on mm, new mm, stuff? Mm. Who we await with bated breath for <laughs> no this stuff. No <laughs> pressure. So the other book I'll mention very briefly is, it, I can't remember exactly, I think we did in that year Garth St. Thomas, Nor Any Country. And perhaps of, perhaps of all the kind of um, classics that we brought back into print, Garth St. Thomas was, was one that I was personally sort of most keenest to kind of do that because I, I recognised that he, I mean, he was published by Faber and he didn't publish rubbish in, in any kind of sense and things. And he published four novels at the, from between about 67 and 71. They all tend to be, they're all around the same kind of family, characters crisscross in and out of different stories. And he writes with this incredible economy he also he also writes. I, I think of all the novelists at the time, he was. The people tended to put him down as being nihilistic and negative, but I think he was just incredibly honest about the nature of of how of, of just how deep a struggle decolonization really was. Mm. So he, he he kind of you know he he he's quite merciless sometimes about the kind of characters who spout the language of decolonisation, but then in their personal lives are doing exactly the opposite. Yeah. So, you know, he, 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 he's very realistic about just, you know, he, he, his novels kind of say, look, you can't have 200 years of colonialism and shake it off overnight. Mm. So he's really, I mean, he shows points, those points where it's possible to begin to evolve from it, but he's just really so honest about the kind of traps that people are in. And he does it brilliantly economically. I mean, any kind of writer could learn stuff from Garth and Toma. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so he, he, he'll open a, a novel with a conversation. He won't tell you anything about the people who, who, are, who, who are involved in the conversation. But you can work out exactly what their social relationship is and, and so on. Just some tiny little clues. Right. So you know he he's a he's a brilliant master of showing, not telling. Mm, so, but in so, so he, 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 he he's definitely really somebody get, yeah. to, to 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 look at to look at closely. Mm. Okay, two thousand fourteen, mm -hmm. another new poet poetic voice, uh, Vladimir Lucian, mm. whose collection of poetry Sounding Ground was People Tree's first overall Bocus winner. I mean, we sort of won different bits of it, but mm. he won won the Bocus generally. And and I think kind of recognised that, yeah, that he, he had a genuinely new voice. He, he I mean, just say, I'll tell you, you know, the Vladimir sent us a collection probably round about 2008, 2009. And I think both Kwame and I, Kwame Dawes, who was the, Associate poetry editor, both recognised there was something something really good there. At that stage, he was writing good Walcott pastiches, mm -hmm. 
And you've got to be quite. Still, yeah, you've got to, you've still, still got to, you've got to be quite good to write a Walcott pastiche and make it convincing. But he was trying to dis- he was in that process of discovering. Himself. He was discovering, yeah. And I think we did him the big favour of, of not taking him on that mm. stage, but 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 saying, look, we think there's something here. When you've you know when you've done it, send it back. Mm. And you know, so that um, you know, he, by that stage, he 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 shed Walcott. He'd learned from Walcott. He'd found his own own kind mm. of voice, so that that was an important thing. And also, um, obviously, um, coming from Saint Lucia, which is which is you know Walcott is the is the godfather. Of course, you know you're going to, you know, kind of apprentice in his shadow in a way. Exactly, mm. and I mean one of the things again that's worth saying about Saint Lucia is that there that. I mean, I'm sure there are probably things that you that, that are kind of that are different, that. but you certainly get the impression that there there is a mutually supportive poetry community, mm, definitely in, in St. Lucia, where people genuinely. So, I mean, so somebody somebody like Vladimir would acknowledge the kind of support that somebody like John Robert Lee has given mm. him. Mm. The ins- he doesn't write anything like Kendall Hippolyte, yeah. but you know the inspiration of that, mm-hmm. the fact that there's Jane King around there, uh, you know. So the, there's there, you know there's a rich kind of community of, mm-hmm. of poets, although the generous and the generosity and the that generosity they kind of speak that, about and, yes, yes. And, and acknowledge each other's work and stuff. Yes, and, yeah. yes, very much so. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I mean, one of the things to say about Seleucia is. For 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 a, for a tiny place, I mean, it's about one hundred and fifty, hundred and sixty thousand people or something. The amount of the amount of actual self you know published literature in the place is immense. Mm. You know, I mean, John Robert Lee, John Robert Lee's just done a big bibliography of Saint Saint Lucian writing. You know, that and most of which was published in Saint Lucia. Wow, and that's that's really something. Okay, another another kind of just one, one other thing mentioned from that year that was important in a, in, a, in a really different way was Khadija Ibrahim's uh, another crossing, yeah. and that's that was important not not just for the merits of the collection itself, which tremendously good, the brilliant ways in which you know she's able to move from a kind of a, a, a kind of inherited Jamaican voice to a Leeds voice but the fact it was something where where we were able to you know work with Khadija and other people to actually putting you know a show at the Leeds Playhouse I've never been to a book launch like that before. no it was it was and, and you it suddenly, was theatrical it was it was I mean the thing was brilliant brilliantly done but what was what was also what was brilliant was the fact that the Playhouse was full of black people mm. And people who 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 did who'd never not never been there before, mm-hmm. people who didn't necessarily read books, although we sold loads of books at the, the, the thing, and people who were inspired inspired by it, mm-hmm. uh, and you know that, I mean we did things like like we this was one thing Hannah Bannister did was to put out we put out cards and they were distributed in in key streets in Chapeltown, and I don't know how many people who got those cards turned up. But it, you know, it, it, it was an interesting effort in kind of sp- in spreading the word in, into mm-hmm. to people who weren't normally part of the kind of circuit of poetry readings and things. And also, I mean, being a, a kind of guest on that on that bill, uh, and it was very, it was a very theatrical um, affair, um, book launch. Um, I was touched and, and moved and quite astonished by the 
um, camaraderie between um, Khadija Ibrahim and the crowd and, mm-hmm. and people acknowledging themselves in the stories mm-hmm. and understanding exactly. this was a very important oral testimony, history, living history being, um, you know, being kind of theatricalized there. The poems were being brought alive in a theatrical way, but actually it was kind of, it reminded me of going to the theater in Guyana, that call and response between right, the community right, and the people. Right. And people seeing themselves reflected and laughing at the inside jokes because they know that, that, that community, they know each other and they, and, and this writer is reflecting them, you know, their, their kind of experiences. It was very, it was yeah. And it was, it was, it was that kind of social memory mm. so that, you know, that, things which had disappeared from cultural tastes over the years. You could see people in the audience saying, oh, yes, we used to eat those. Yeah, you know, so yeah. it, it had all that, that kind of, mm. not, not in any, 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 any kind of um, sort of sentimental kind of way, mm. but it, it kind of presented a, a, a community as a solid mm. part of the, of, of, of the city, really, mm. I suppose. Yeah. So that was, that was, 2014 mentioned in two th- I mean no perhaps it was one of the 2014 again a, a significant poet with their first collection was Lauren Elaine yes. Trinidadian American poet her first collection called Difficult Fruit she's done another one since then whose title has gone out of my head <laughs> but you know Difficult Fruit you know was a a brilliant kind of debut mm-hmm. and well showing that she had exactly had her you know had her own voice w- was kind of did, did all those things with an expertise in form and often using form to shape around very difficult kind of subject matters i mean the, the one of the subject matters in the moment is a rape mm. and and finding a, a, a way of Dealing with that mm. and dealing with, with with a form which in itself was beautiful, mm. you know, it, it is part of, it was mm. part of the kind mm. of challenge that she mm. set herself and, and, and achieved. Okay, um, two thousand and fifteen. Yeah. <laughs> right, one of one of the significant books for me that year of somebody who I'd whose work I'd heard at Bocas in Trinidad was Sharon Miller. Mm. And she wrote a very, very good collection of short stories called The Whale House and Other Stories. And you kind of, you know, you realise then that, you know, that Sharon is one of the real kinds of, um, you know, her short short stories are really shaped, except that sometimes they're allowed to to move around and you think, where's this going? And then it suddenly arrives at exactly, you know, at a spot which is exactly right. Mm. So the, the range of the stories the language of the stories, the imagery of the stories, the way that kind of images move in and out of different stories is very, very powerful. Mm. And, you know, the, it, 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 one of the things that kind of it, it has as a signal quality is its sense of the physicality, the geography of Trinidad, mm. the, different, the different kinds of places and how those impact upon people. Mm. So she writes brilliantly about place. So that was one. Another one I mentioned again, which which was a fine collection of poetry, is Tiffany Yannick's yeah. collection, Wife, which won the Forward Prize. Yes, forward it won the Forward Prize and things, and, and was shortlisted in mm. Focus and stuff. A fine, you know, a fine collection of 
militant poems yeah. militant poems <laughs> about about relationships and yeah and Bruta looks at matrimony and yes and yeah, yeah 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 but but we're done with the wit mm. done with the real kind of wit mm. and yeah so that's a, that's a fine a fine collection so you know yeah so she's certainly someone you, you hope will will write more poetry mm. um, she's, she's essentially a kind of fiction writer yeah she? she's written more fiction than poetry but the, short stories are astonishing yeah, yeah that, that, that that collection yeah mm. tremendous so what the, she has a short story that one of them set in the lep, lepery yes. thing in, in Trinidad, Trinidad yes. that's right that's yeah. right yeah the other one is, is, is a kind of odd choice because it probably it hasn't sold like it should have done and there are reasons for that and this is a this is a collection of essays and memoir pieces by a writer from Montserrat called Edgar Nicosi White, oh. and Edgar Edgar has an important kind of he he. One of the things about him, I mean, he he, he was important in British theatre in the nineteen eighties and seventies and eighties and Black British theatre then. Mostly, I bet he's been in the states. But he he went back to Montserrat at the time where after the volcano and the, where, where everybody else was leaving, right. and that's that's Edgar mm-hmm. <laughs> that, 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 that he does that, that things, and and this is you know this is a collection you know they're they're very much a kind of inside the head record of, of somebody who who is. I think you'd have to say was quite eccentric in some kind of ways, in, in, in a but very acute, mm. and and they you know, and sadly they 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 haven't sold that well outside of Montserrat. They do all right, in unfortunately, there are not that many people in Montserrat. Mm. But Ed, Edgar is you know is a good writer, and um, you know it has a, has a lot of character and it's often very funny and things. So if you want something different, yeah, Edgar White's Deported to Paradise. It's a good title, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's a very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was that was the 2015 choice. That was Jeremy Poynton giving us part two of the books of the decade. If you are taking notes, remember that he'll be returning later on in the program. So you know, keep those pens and pencils handy. During World War One, soldiers from across the British Army and the colonies from India to the Caribbean served in the British Army. These contributions are not reflected in the narrative, in the war narratives, honouring our war heroes. I talked to people to press poets Tanya Shirley, Aishan Hutchison and Vladimir Lucien, three of nine poets commissioned to research work about British West Indian soldiers who served in the in an attempt to resurrect and to excavate those stories and bring it to the limelight. I also was involved in the project, so you'll hear from me as a poet um, in the next segment. So Tanya Shirley, Aishan Hutchinson, Malika Booker, that's me, and Vladimir Lucien have been four of the writers who've been commissioned to work on the unwritten project, writing poems about Caribbean soldiers or West Indian soldiers who took part in the First World War. How did you both find working on this project, Tanya and uh, Aishan? It, it was intense, um, somber, 
reading about the soldiers' experiences, but I also was very aware while working on it about all the gaps and the omissions and the narratives that weren't included and weren't privileged, and I felt an intense sense of obligation to fill in those gaps. I, I would agree. I think filling in the gaps is a, is a good phrase. And I think even heightening the, those gaps, giving intensity to it. I was very surprised by the process of um, how these poems came to be. Some of them are, are visiting the, the material in libraries and so on. But that's just history. That's flat and informational. And the language that um, started to come to me and the poems that I've read from other poets in the anthology gives this such intensity and, and energy to that history that it's current and, and alive. So the poems are published in an anthology edited by Kara McCarthy Wolf called Unwritten Caribbean Poems after the First World War. Um, and although I present this podcast, I'm one of the poets that was also um, commissioned. And I found it quite traumatic, actually, trying to write these stories, realizing that there was there had been this big omission of, of World War I soldiers and, and the treatment that they were subjected to um, really upset me. And I wanted my poems to kind of reflect that. But I found that I you know, starting the stories from all different perspectives. I couldn't find the right perspective or who to write about. We're going to hear some excerpts from what we've written. Um, We'll start off with Tanya. Okay. This one is entitled Pick and Shovel, and I'll just read the first stanza. Mabel, I spilled my seed on the mound of your thigh, put off plans for making a baby so I could go to show I was man enough. Hold a machine gun, feel the heft and shine. Know it was mine to shoot a white man, even if it wasn't the one who pushed you down, down onto his bed the first day you went to clean his house on the hill, his wife loitering behind the door. And here's an excerpt from the poem. It's called A School of Instruction. They shoveled the long trenches day and night, frostbitten mud, Shell-shock mud, dung-heap mud, imperial mud, venereal mud, malaria mud, hunbait mud, mating mud, 1655 mud, white flashes of sharks, Golgotha mud, chillblane mud, Caliban mud, ha-ha-ha mud, amnesia mud, civil war mud, lice mud, pyrexia mud, exposure mud, aphasia mud, no man's land is every man's mud, and the smoking flax mud. And that was Aishin Hutchison, and I'm going to, and we had Tanya Sterley as well reading. I'm now going to read just one verse from her silent wake. Her silent wake, one, blank. This stillness is airy, cloudy like stagnant water. John Crow picks her flesh, the blood white with sorrow. Tiny exaltations, in, out, the only sign of life. She's a black statue in a whitewashed wooden chair, a dilapidated board house, sitting still till dusk spreads her silk petticoat across the sagging sky and bats swarm into the evening's canvas. Her boy Pickney Herbert, dead. So Vladimir, you're one of the poets commissioned on this Unwritten Poems project. Um, 
How did you find approaching this commission to, you know, write about World War soldiers and the British, um, the West Indian contribution? Okay, uh, yeah, this is the second time I'm doing uh, commission. So, I mean, commissions sometimes make me a little anxious <laughs> because um, there's a way in which you're, you're accustomed to being entirely in charge of your own project. But the Unwritten Poems project was pretty interesting for me. Um, inhabiting history in that way and having to draw out of it something of human value, something also um, containing that kernel of human complexity as well, not giving way to what history does. You know, you have to write, you have to be a poet and not a historian. And similarly, not not be a politician either. So, so I, I think one of the first things I was trying to do is to to get in touch with what the human stories were within the the archive and what I could draw out of the archive. You know, I mean, the imagination is there as well. Um, you read and you try to find a voice. So a lot of the process, I think, as I was telling the editor Karen McCarthy Wolf, I was spending a lot of time, yes, reading the information, reading the information, but trying to find a voice for these poems. Um, whether they were going to be told by a, an all-knowing persona or um, one of the persons there, ended up with quite a few poems of, of, of almost in the voices of what would have been soldiers at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think what I wanted to capture was, I, I looked at the event taking place where a ship was diverted from um, England because of fear of German submarines to Halifax. And the persons on the ship were, were ill-clothed for the weather. There was a blizzard and frostbite, People had um, limbs amputated and all of these things. So I wanted to look at that because in a way it took me away from the front, so to speak. But there was something like war going on. People losing limbs in the same way. You know how ironic. People losing limbs, people losing their lives. And uh, interestingly, they were getting from the weather the kind of treatment that, that many complained of getting from the Europeans when they got to England and Europe on the front. So I chose to look at, at that aspect of things, and um, I, I think it was fruitful. I mm. think it was fruitful. Yeah. Can we hear an excerpt from the work? Yes. The long poem I did, a series of poems, is called um, Verdala Chronicles, which looks at the, it's named after the SS Verdala, which was the ship that they were on. And this is while they were left out in the weather and not taken in by the Canadian officials in Halifax. For days, the ship remained out in the bay, watching Halifax, Halifax watching it, us. For days the snow's serene bombardment. For days our ship rocked gently in the water's consoling arms, the frigid soft-spoken air like a useless secretary bringing no news. And occasionally the false hope of a bird Far-off street conversations we hoped were about us. Important citizens scandalized as the stricken trees. But mostly, there was silence and snow. And from time to time, the wind, urgent as an ambulance, came and left, bearing nothing. Those poets were three of nine poets who have been commissioned to research and write poems around this unwritten history. If you want to read more of the poems and read the other poets who are published, um, look out for the collection Unwritten Caribbean Poems After the First World War, edited by Karen McCarthy Wolf and published by Nine Arches Press. We've come to the part of the program where Jeremy Poynton gives us his final roundup of books from the last decade that were important to People Tree Press. 2016, mm -hmm. 
Okay, 2016 is the year when a certain Mr. Jacob Ross reappears on the scene mm. with his novel, The Bone Readers. Mm. And, you know, but there's, there's plenty, been plenty of talk about that, so I won't say, won't say any more about... I couldn't about, put that, it down. You couldn't put it down. And, and you know, we know that his, his new book is just about to, to come out. So, you know, that's an interest. We're very interested in, um, and perhaps we can talk about it at some stage and get Jacob to talk about the difference between, you know, so the bone readers done by small people tree, the new, next book by Little Brown in their, their big crime series. And there have been some interesting differences in the way the book's been edited, the kind of, the kind of expectations of readership of what, what readers know and what they don't know, what you have to tell readers that we wouldn't necessarily tell readers. And the proof was, you know, how does this book sell? Does it make a difference that it comes from Little Brown? Mm. So th there's an interesting kind of experiment going on there right. that, that we hope will end very well for Jacob, you mm. know, in terms of, you know, the film contract will come in, the television series will come out of it. I you know? mean, when you're reading the first book, yeah. you know, you oh, can yeah. see it, all of those characters. Those are so... characters, yes, are so tremendous. Yes, yeah, they ferocious. put in the shade every, everybody else. So other things, other things. Again, another really important book that came out that year, and I think you know when people look back on the writing of that that decade, it will stand out. And that's Marcia Douglas's marvelous Equations mm. of the Dread, mm. which you know I think is a brilliantly original novel, a novel that has in Bob Marley, it has Edward the Eighth or something, and it has you know so it it. it it pulls all those kinds of things together and gives a brilliant kind of view of Jamaica. It has a, a dub side to it a, 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 and it's just brilliantly put together. I mean, it's so brilliantly put together that, that, that the one of the editors from um, America's New Directions heard it and see and what they, they, they bought, bought the American rights of us. Mm. And, you know, they, and they only published the most sort of challenging and and kind of uh, serious stuff. So Marcy Douglas's Marvelous Equation, The Dread, if you missed it. Well, it's such a good title, isn't it? it? Is, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think, it, I think it began as a Marvelous Equations of the Dead because quite a few of the characters are dead and living afterlives. Mm. I think Haile Selassie appears in it in the novel at some, in, in some space or mm. other. But then rightly it became the Marvelous Equations of the Dread. Yes. You know, it, 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 it's the, the most Rastafarian novel you could imagine in, in that thing. And the other thing, again, that was really important that year was that we published Kamar Brathwaite's collection of poetry, Strange Fruit. And that was, you know, it's where people, I think, had thought that Kamar was sort of, had you know, had written his stuff. But then suddenly, really, in his quite old age he he brought he wrote four or five new collections mm -hmm. that explore old age that explore you know the, the relationships that, exp that explore the difficult times he'd been through mm -hmm. and do it do, you know did it with a lot of grace and kind of uh, things so that you know that was an important book to have done and, uh, and keeping his experimentalism and keeping absolutely and, keeping and his, his experimentalism and his, going, yeah. And his kind of like almost eccentric, um, lyrical kind, yeah. of, kind of yeah. wordplay and, and yeah, you know, it's, it's, yeah. The, yeah, 
I mean, there's some brilliant, absolutely brilliant lines mm-hmm. in there. 2017, uh, highlights of that year. I mean, they're, they're really, mm-hmm. one of them was Leonie Ross, um, who's come let us sing anyway. Showed, I mean, it was a brilliant thing that we, you know, we, things, but it showed that if you could get your stuff into the BBC and the media, so that fe- that was featured, and I think thanks to Bernadine Evaristo, who's been a great kind of supporter of People Tree, um, it was on a good read, and suddenly the book took off. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody on that that good read thought what a tremendous collection of stories this was, and it sold well. I mean, for us, mm-hmm. it sold through the roof for for a few mm-hmm. weeks or two. So you know that that has, that did really really mm-hmm. well. And you think, yeah, if only we could get a bit more of that kind of attention. And she's a really good reader of her work. And she's work a good is, reader of her work, quite, exactly. It's quite, um, quite extraordinarily um, the only. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly, yes. That's the only way I can describe uh, it. Yeah. Another important kind of new voice that year was Shivani Ramlochan, mm. um, Trinidadian writer, who would have been a challenger for the Bocas Prize, but for the fact that she's part of the, the staff team and the staff team are not allowed to enter for the prize. But her Everyone Knows I'm a Haunting has done tremendously well. Mm. It's kind of impressed everybody around, you know. So, I mean, I remember I'd be, when Shivani was here, I went with her on a couple of kind of readings and things. We went up to Stirling University and people are just awestruck by the, this poem. And by the current Poet Laureate, who, who in one of his little podcasts for, oh, yes. for uh, I think, Waterstones, yeah. said it was the most exciting thing, he, thing he'd read for ages. Yeah, Simon Armitage. Simon Ar- that. Yeah, that's yes, right. Yeah. Yes. So look up Simon Armitage and Shivani Rangelotin and you'll see a connection being made there. But that's, you know, that's a book which I think is one of those books that will change the way some people write poetry. Um, and has actually and has I'm sure it has yes someone I was mentoring I sent to one of our workshops and completely transformed her life and her writing and gave her permission to deal with difficult stuff stuff yes Mm. exactly exactly and and I mean again it it sort of it shows if you kind of put think about Lauren Elaine's writing and you think about Shivani's writing they both deal with really difficult stuff but they d- deal with it from quite different diff- different ends, mm-hmm. and they're both equally powerful. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think you know, and I think that shows something of the, you know, the breadth of Caribbean writing. You know, that people c- can explore very different kind of approaches to hard experience. Yeah. yeah. The other book I'll mention because it, it was an important book in terms of the process. Um, but also because it won the Bocas Prize, overall prize, was Jennifer Rahim's Curfew Chronicles. And that's it's a brilliantly con- brilliant collection of stories, again, with characters who, who travel in and out of different stories. It all takes place in 24 hours during when the Trinidad curfew was announced. And it, the curfew announced by the government, who basically then went out and arrested a lot of young black men who then the police had to release because there was no, they couldn't bring any charges against them. But the, but the whole kind of thing was, you know, the government kind of turn, turned on the population. Well, no, no doubt the middle classes were quite pleased with the curfew. But it, it, it was a kind of... And, and the tough thing of being a, a primarily Indian government 
um, victimising young black men. And Jennifer's novel, you know, her, her, her book gets all of those kind of things um, and sort of brings into fiction characters. I mean, so one of, one of her characters is, is, is a lovely woman who, who, who just works in a fast food shop. And we just see her on the way back from the shop, travelling from, you know, travelling back from San Fernando where she works to Porto, Spain. And the, 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 the and the, the, you know there are all those kinds of kind of little journeyings across and people hurrying because they've got to be in before the curfew mm -hmm. comes. Mm -hmm. So it, it it's a novel which gives a, a kind of powerful view of what Trinidadian society was like, and also kind of I mean one of the things that one of its real um, person who really spoke for it was Lorna Goodison. Lorna Goodison was chair of judges. And one of the things she and she said to me about about it since is, she, you know, Jennifer Jennifer Rahim is one of the real writers with a real moral centre. She asks hard moral questions about the Caribbean without any kind of preaching, mm -hmm. but they but they you know that they they explore explore a political decision. As a moral decision, mm -hmm. as well as a political one, and you know, so I think she's a really important writer. That was two thousand seventeen. Mm -hmm. Two thousand eighteen. Um, one of the you know one of the kind of pe people who we we spotted earlier on a Gabokas, Trinidadian writer Barbara Jenkins, mm -hmm. and we did her earlier collection, which he quickly could have mentioned. Um, sick transit wagon collection of stories, but did did a, 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 wrote her first novel, The Writer's Place, mm. and she's I think she's done a reading with an excerpt. She's done. She, you, ha, you have a bit from that. So that yeah. that was an important one, and I think I mean one of the things I'd say about Barbara's work is people have the have the impression sometimes that Caribbean sort of writing it's sort of, sort of is realistic and sometimes a bit humorless, you know, because it's dealing with hard things. She's she's a real successor of somebody like Sam Sullivan, you know, in 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 writing things which ha, which has a, again she has a moral compass, mm -hmm. but the, there is a kind of you know there's a humour, a rich humour around um, the writer's place. Mm -hmm. It's a novel about a pub in Belmont and the kind of characters who you know it's a kind of Trinidadian Cheers, mm -hmm. but with more depth to it than mm -hmm. that. And if you want to. Um, refresh your memory about Barbara Jenkins just go back to um, a previous episode of the podcast and listen to that story which is from the writing right, space right um, the other book again sometimes books which, which kind of are with you for quite a long time you think one important book was Kevin Lejeune's non-fiction book which is called Don't Stop the Carnival which was a kind, which was is the first volume of two about the position of black people in British music, so that it goes right back to Tudor times, and looks and then looks at pe looks at people emerging through the eighteenth century, the, both the street musicians and the and the court musicians, and but 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 then it kind of really expands around the kind of that post war period. Of looking at the kind of ways in which the emergings of West, you know, West West African music, 
Trinidadian music, Jamaican music, British jazz, all sort of coming coming together, particularly around, in London. But it, one of its virtues of this book is that he also deals with things like the Manchester scene, um, the, the kind of what was going on in Liverpool, what was going on in, in Leeds. So, you know, the, it's a book which it, which is very far from being London-centric. Mm. And it's actually has just won a, a, an important prize um, for the recording in the American recording industry's book of uh, you know, historical, important historical book. So that that was one uh, important one. The other one it w- was a kind of much more personal kind of project, where uh, we reprinted Kwame Dore's Prophets, and I sat down to write a reader's guide, mm-hmm. which was a kind of interest, really interesting thing. And it was kind of because I've always felt that, I mean, you know, that, that there is a big Kwame Dawes kind of um, repertoire of things. But I always felt that Prophets was a really important one. Um, that probably because at that time we were small, very small, well, still very small, but but that time didn't have the kind, any kind of name or clout. Prophets kind of slipped out and didn't get the attention it should have done. So this was an attempt, to, I don't know if it's worked yet, I'm, I'm not sure at all, but it was an attempt to put profits out. And one of the things I'd thought about why profits hadn't got the kind of response it should have got was that people didn't have the confidence to know what was sometimes going on in it. Mm. It's a very Jamaican book. It's mm. a book which is steeped in the Bible, mm. steeped in reggae, steeped in, in, in the, you know, the, those particular times. It's a very elusive book, um, Shakespeare, for everybody from Shakespeare to you know to reggae tunes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that was the that was the thing. Let's wind up with two thousand and nineteen. Mm-hmm. Of course, again, I mean, it's not a year that's not wasn't a thing. So of course, one of the books that turned up in the two thousand was Roger Robinson's A Portable Paradise. Yes. About which I think we don't need to say anything much more at this this point. Another important book, which is, is is kind of came out at the end of the year, which is still to kind of get the intention that it deserves, is Anthony Joseph's The Frequency of Magic. Fantastic, a novel. fantastic novel, a novel yeah. which, again, as a, as an editor, set real challenges. Mm-hmm. You know, when you when you when you face with a novel written in a hundred chapters each of a thousand words, and you've got to keep that. And yet you've got some suggestions about little t- tweaks here and there and things. So it, 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 it was a kind of rewarding experience in terms of the kind of dialogue that went on there. And that's an old I hope desperately will, will you know, get the kind of attention it gets. Two of the books kind of at, almost at the opposite end of the kind of age kind of thing. Well, I suppose Roger and Anthony are in, in hearty Early middle age, perhaps. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> whereas Early middle age. One of the books I was really pleased to have done in that year was Gordon Relaire's Perfected Fables Now. Mm. And one of the the kind of nice ironies about that book was that it's written as Gordon's last book, but in fact there are at least two to follow after after <laughs> that one. And it, and it was... I, I'd always hugely admired Gordon Relaire's writing the importance of his work. And I admired the fact that he wanted it published in Trinidad. 
the negative side of that was that nobody else got to see it, mm. so that the copies just didn't get out, and 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 so that he, you know, he he was far less known than he should have been. So as well as doing his collection of of, of essays, contemporary ones, we we also did. Um, my Strangled City, and we're just about to do The Shape of That Hurt um, as Caribbean modern classics, because they, you know, they're the books which define define a period. They define the seventies and eighties in a way that nobody else quite quite managed to do, you know. And I think he, you know, he's such an important kind of mm. cultural literary critic. Yeah. yeah. The other one just mentioned it is it was a, a, a sad farewell. Gordon is very hale and hearty still. And no doubt he he will he will surprise us all by writing more books. Is Hazel Campbell, and Hazel Campbell, really fine Jamaican short story writer, who we published a collection of her stories called Singerman. Probably I don't remember seeing it. Probably in the late in the mid nineties, something like that. That and I always sort of hoped that that she would write more, but Hazel went into writing children's books. She wrote a lot of good Jamaican children's books. But we, we, we'd run out of copies of Singerman, and I wanted to brief us. I went, got back to Hazel and said, have you written any more stories? And I also kind of... I, you know, she'd also written some kind of earlier collections um, that uh, were published by Sabaku, by Cameron Brathwaite. Mm. And I, you know, I'd had them, and I couldn't, hadn't read them for ages. So I sort of opened them with some trepidation: were they any good? And they were; they were mm. e- excellent stories. And then she came back and said, "Well, actually, I have. I've, I've got, you know, I hadn't got a book's worth, but I've got, you know, I've got half a dozen recent, more recent stories." So we put together uh, a collection called Jamaica on My Mind mm-hmm. by one of the very best short story writers um, of the Caribbean. Of you know. You know, Hazel writes with great insight, great wit. The very sad part of about it was um, the the time she was dying of cancer. I mean, she was about, I think she was just in her early 80s. Mm. And she she was able to sign off the book, but never saw a copy of it. So that was really sad. But I mean, we, we, we were kind of, she, you know, I think she was, Really gratified by that, by the knowledge that it, that it was coming out, we rushed it. We rushed mm-hmm. it out, but it, it didn't get there in time. But mm-hmm. um, but she, you know, but she was she's a fine fine writer, and anybody who's not discovered Hazel Campbell should do. Mm-hmm. She do. I think that's the the very important um, role of the the Caribbean classics. You know, bringing kind of that literary, bringing kind of writers that we that have escaped our knowledge or that weren't published yeah bringing yeah. them back to the forefront yeah. and um, well you know, hey, you know hey, i mean hazel's a totally contemporary writer oh, okay. right mm-hmm. and she has i mean for instance she has a brilliant recent recent story about the uh, i think the the, the, the story's called the booby yagas and it's about the kind of young the young men the, the gay young men who are on the uh, having to escape from their communities, and who occupy the gullies and things. And, and she has this brilliant story about this this group and, and the way that um, I think one of the son the son of one of the, the characters families in there it, it becomes part of that community. So she she was right on the spot in, term, in terms of uh, looking at what was happening in Jamaica. 
Wow. I was blown away by the diversity of the books, the subject matters, and um, particularly in terms of the, the Caribbean modern classics series, and um, just feel like I want to read more of those books by authors that I hadn't written about. I thought it was very insightful, so I thank Jeremy for just taking the time for creating that list of books for us, um, of Caribbean literature that we can tap back into or abide and look into um, in the last decade. Some really amazing writers were launched as well, um, who are important to Caribbean writing today. In January 2020, People True Press Poet, who is of Trinidadian British um, heritage, Roger Robinson, was awarded the prestigious T.S. Eliot Prize for Poetry. It's one of the most prestigious prize, poetry prizes in Britain and the world, and previous winners include Ted Hughes, Derek Walcott, Alice Oswald, and Seamus Heaney. And it's described by the poet Andrew Motion as the prize that most poets want to win. I was fortunate to be able to grab Roger between press interviews just minutes after the announcement was made. I must say that uh, Roger is, a, is also a, a close friend of mine and um, a writing buddy and colleague. So um, it was very hard to kind of remember that I was conducting an interview for People's Repress. And so you can hear the kind of friendship and the joy. But I think that reflected as well the atmosphere in the room. It was very celebratory when it was announced that Roger Robinson had been awarded this prize. Um, so yes, here is Roger Robinson. So tonight, the 13th of January, January 2020, <laughs> Roger Robinson was just announced as the T.S. Eliot um, Poetry Prize winner for Best Collection from 2019. <laughs> yes, and I'm here quickly with him. How did it feel? Did you know? I know yesterday. Well, like, uh, I'm telling you, it's just like a weird kind of shell shock. Like, wow, did you say my name? Did you say my name? Okay, I have to think of something to say. Hmm. Wow. And it just, it was just, it's still sinking in. You know what I'm saying? It's just mm. like, I'm just here, just what you call it. I said to myself, I wanted to have fun tonight, no matter what happened. You know? Mm -hmm. I guess I'm going to have a lot more fun now. <laughs> and um, when I came in the room, everybody. Everyone I talked to said this was this was a really hot selection. I mean, you were up yeah. against some big guns yeah, yeah, yeah. and some every all your collections in this shortlist were ferocious. But yeah, everyone as real. I went around the room said, this person's good, this person's good, but my favorite, I'm gunning for Roger, I'm gunning wow, for Roger, I'm gunning nice. for Roger. That's nice. Did you know that that you know from 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 the South Bank Center to um, to Ruth Brothwaite, to that all these literary poets and yeah. organizations were rooting for you. Yesterday I saw Apples and Snakes, they were rooting for you. Wow. Did you know that no. all this love and Well, support? I know I know Apples and Snakes because in 25 years of practice, Malika, as you well know, you build relationships with people for years and years, decades. Mm -hmm. And so people you've been building relationships for decades, suddenly you're up for something and they put all their love towards you. And you could feel that love, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. So I did feel that from the people I knew. I didn't feel 
from South Bank that people from South Bank was rejecting me. When I was talking me. to Ted, he was yeah. he was like I, my favorite. I'm fond. Yeah. I want Roger to win. I would love Roger to win. Wow, that's um, nice. You know, speaking to Patience Agbabi, poet, yeah. speaking to Katie Evans Bush, yeah. speaking to, across the board. Wow, you know, that's really Aaron nice. Warner, speaking to all these poets from disparate parts of the scene. Wow. Um, I love. You know, I, I, I really like the fact that people are giving me their respect and recognition. But the bigger part of this is that if people who look like me feel that they can write poetry, that's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. You know, me and you started Balaika's Poetry Kitchen. Yes. This is what we was about. Yes, you know, this, this, is what we, about. this is what we was about. So and how I leveraged that to, for my mission of being able to get black and minority ethnic people to start writing and increasing the empathy in the world mm -hmm. is what I care about the most is bigger than the money. Yes. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and the last question is, we, we are both kind of in awe and, 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 and craft, or one of our craftsmanship is, is due to Sharon Olds. Yeah, for real. And she's a ferocious kind of Poseidon spirit in our, yeah, in our real, craft. Real, real. How did it feel to be shortlisted with Sharon Olds for Orioles? Well, it was a bit frightening at first because I've lived with her poetry for so long. I tell you one strange thing that happened. She was telling me things about her life, and I'm saying in my mind, I know this. I read all the poems already. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. one thing she's talking about because she put so much of herself into mm -hmm. the poems. And uh, meeting her, she is the sweetest person you will ever meet. And you know, people ask me, was you afraid to be on the stage yesterday? I was like, oh, no, I wasn't mm. afraid to be on the stage because I'd done a lot of readings in my mm. life. Was I afraid to meet her? Like meeting her was just like, oh, I'm a bit anxious i'm a bit mm -hmm. fanboy i'm a bit you know i don't want to say anything stupid mm -hmm. she's lovely she's and, lovely. and I, i keep saying the last this is the final question um last night you're reading at the t.s Eliot. um yeah. i've never seen people run out to buy a book so fast wow. people were like i want to get that wow, the last wow, guy's wow, book really nice. um people were um crying wow. at your poems what was your thought when you put together that set um for the poetry i put together the set literally before i walked out on stage mm -hmm. i was like I wanted to show the range of what I was doing, but I wanted to take an uh, opportunity to increase empathy. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? With my book, it's about empathy. My, my, you, both of our mentors, Kwame Doors, said poetry is an opportunity to increase empathy. Mm -hmm. And that people fight wars, kill each other, shoot each other's shit because they have a lack of empathy, because mm -hmm. a lack of practice. Mm -hmm. And that's the essential great thing about poetry. It presents a practice of empathy. So people can practice it to apply it in their daily lives. Interesting. And I think mm. you really achieved that last night because mm. one of the gentlemen standing next to me at the bookstore yeah. said, you know what was really good about this poem? And it was a young, you know, yeah. Caucasian gentleman. He said, is that my son was born six months ago and I had a similar experience. And this was feeling that someone went through this just made right. me feel and this is why I want the book. Right. So your work is doing work wow, out there. I want to say congratulations. You're a good friend of mine. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I feel as if I were... <laughs> you know I won't be writing without you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and you know I used to look at you on stage. You know what I'm saying? You know how, you know how we do. You know how um, we do. But this has been... Yeah. I think this is a tremendous um, yeah, 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 achievement yeah. and I'm so proud of you. Thank you very much. We've come to the end of this episode. I want to say that I'm so happy that I remembered that I had my iPhone on me and was just able to grab Roger Robinson in the heart of the moment. You've been listening to New Caribbean Voices. Today, we had an extended episode where you heard from Jeremy Clinton, you heard from Anton Nimiat, 
um, Tanya Shirley, Vladimir Lucien, Aishan Hutchison, myself as a poet, and also Roger Robinson. I think today this program is very special to me because um, of Jeremy's breakdown of um, the books that are important to People Tree Press over the last decade. And I find myself, I found myself kind of making a shopping list of books that I felt it was important for me to read that I'd missed. Thank you for listening to New Caribbean Voices, People Tree Press's literary podcast. I'd like to end by thanking our producer, Melody Triumph, the Arts Council of England, and Clarissa Lua's award for their support. Please look out for future episodes of New Caribbean Voices. I'm Malika Booker, and I've been your presenter.